but uh, well, about a decade ago, a Christian author by the name of Ron Sider wrote a book, and he entitled it, it's a long title, The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience, Why Are Christians Living Just Like the Rest of the World? And in that book, he draws on statistics and polls and evidence to demonstrate that people just like you and me, evangelical Christians, are as likely to embrace a lifestyle just as hedonistic, materialistic, self-centered, and sexually immoral as the world around us. And he represents a number of books who've been saying the same thing. Well, I know an older book that talked about that. It's called the Bible. And in the Bible, the Old Testament concern was that Yahweh's people were living just like the pagan nations around them. And in the New Testament, that God's people were living in sin and in love for the world, and it didn't bother them. So the concern even in the Bible is there. Well, in our passage today, we're going to be looking at two realities that if it gets a hold of you, it'll change your life. And if, if these realities are really inside of your heart, you will live a different life. But if they are not, if they're just talked about and just kind of known about, then what will happen is you'll be a religious Christian. Churchianity is about all you'll ever experience. And it won't, your life won't be distinctly different and God-glorifying. So let's take a look at this passage. It's 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. I've asked Pastor Sean to come up and read that for us, and then we'll deal with that text. So Pastor Sean, come and lead us. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? It's page 1016 in our pew Bibles as well. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless adultery. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached, even to those who are dead, that through judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded, for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received the gift, use it to serve one another as a good steward of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Sean. Well, that's an interesting text, isn't it? And you can see straight up that there are a few interpretive challenges again today. We had a boatload of them last Sunday when we talked about the passage right before. But my intention today is to stick with the main theme and not get to the sidetrack of, of some of the side issues that he raises here. So the big idea about these two realities that will change our lives. The big idea is if we call ourselves Christians, our goal is to cease from sin 
and live for the will of God. If we call ourselves Christians, our goal is not to sin and that we would live for the will of God. Now, Peter talks about these two realities, as I said, that can make that happen. And I want you to see them crystal clear today. I want you not only to see them, but I want you to understand them and embrace them so that when you walk out of here today, you can say, these realities are part of who I am. And they will make a difference in your life. Reality number one is true conversion, verses one through six. True conversion must be a reality in our lives. I'm not just talking about being religious and coming to church and putting offering money in, in the offering plate and all those kinds of religious things that people might do. I am talking about a life that is different from your past and a life that is different from the world around us. I'm talking about a life that's obedient to the Word of God seven days a week. That is true converted living. You see, salvation is about two major things. First of all, it's salvation from sin. And the Lord wants to save us. Without salvation from sin, we're lost. And so we have to have the penalty of our sins uh, cared for. And the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, your sins have been forgiven once for all, and you've been saved from sin. But there is a second part of salvation. It's a second part that we, we aren't talked about that much anymore. And the second part of salvation is basically that we are saved from self. That we are saved from our old habits, our practices, our opinions about things that are contrary to the will of God. And that takes a lifetime. So salvation from sin is in a moment of time. Salvation from ourself and who we are by our old nature and being steeped in this world takes a whole lifetime to deal with that. And so Peter, in our text today, is talking about that second aspect, being saved from self, being saved from religiosity into true conversion. I experienced this in my own life, just to give you a little bit of insight as to how it happened to me. When I was growing up, I grew up in a, a very religious home, and I, I was church from the day I was taken to the nursery. And uh, during that period of time while I was living at home, I gave my heart to the Lord twice. But what happened through this whole course of things, when I hit 7th, 8th, ninth grade, I started going down the wrong road with the wrong friends, and my salvation experience had nothing to do with who I really was. I was supposedly saved, but I was faking out my mom and my dad and the church. And I really wasn't who I said I was. I was saved but not converted. One night, just after my junior year, I will never forget it, I went down to an old-fashioned tent revival meeting. Anybody ever been to an old-fashioned tent revival meeting? Can you smell the sawdust? I mean, it really, it was there. They had sawdust everywhere. And that is the night I got converted. I wasn't just saved. I was converted. And God changed my life. And I truly began to leave my past and the things of this world. And I was so changed that I stopped doing the things that I did with my friends and they wondered what in the world is happening to Al. Something is different. I want you to know salvation without conversion isn't worth much. The two must go together and Peter is saying if you're saved you also need to be converted. So today 
we're looking at what conversion looks like in verses 1 through 6. And he brings forth three aspects of true conversion. I want you to see them. The first aspect is you need to determine to use suffering as a deterrent from sin, verses 1 through 2. Now, this is a different kind of purpose for suffering and getting away, uh, getting beyond sin, verses 1 and 2. It's new in the book. It's a new twist on suffering we, we rarely think about. And here it is. Suffering can help us not to sin. Suffering can help us not to sin. We don't often think in these terms. But that plays a role in our victory over sin because there are many, many times that our suffering will lead us to sin. And he is going to argue that if Christ could go into suffering and conquer sin, so can we. Look at verse 1. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Whoa, that's a hard one to interpret. Some people have said that when you die, you cease from sin. Well, hello, when you die. But the problem here says that verse 2 says that you continue to live on in the flesh. So it's not talking about dying and then you sin no more. It's talking about something else. Some people say that if you come to Christ, Romans chapter 6, you suffer and die on the cross with him, then you're not going to sin anymore. I also want to tell you that no matter how close you are to Christ, Romans 6 and everything else, all of us are going to have a sin problem until the day we die. And so it's not talking about being free from sin in sinless perfection. Here's what's happening. The apostle is teaching that when we suffer, we don't have to sin. That we can do what Christ did. And it says that Christ armed himself for the purpose of suffering. He knew that he was going to suffer. And as a soldier, he armed himself. He put on the armor so that when he suffered, he wouldn't be angry and he wouldn't say the wrong things and he wouldn't do the wrong things and therefore sin. He armed himself to prepare that when he goes through suffering, he would not sin. How many of you know that you're going to suffer? Anybody? Anybody suffer out here? Yeah, we all suffer. And there are many times that our suffering can be a trigger into sin. And so the apostle is saying, we're all going to suffer. This whole book is about suffering. Therefore, look at the model of Christ. Arm yourself as he did and determine that when you suffer, you will not be led into sin and come through it just like him. And I will tell you, if you can keep from sinning during your suffering, you know something. You're more than being religious. You are converted. But now he moves to a second thing. He says, live for the will of God and not for your lusts. Number one, you'll know you're converted when you don't sin during suffering. You arm yourself with Christ did. Number two, you'll know you're converted when you don't live for your own lusts. Unconverted people live for their bodily appetites. Converted people should be living for God. And you can't miss that in verses 2 and 3. You see, if we're alive, and all of us are alive in this room, we're going to have to battle back our flesh. We all have lusts. Converted living pushes those back in a very effective way. And he gives this little list in verse 3 of the kinds of lusts that are out there. These kinds of gratifications that our flesh wants to, us to satisfy. So look at this little list. I mean, it's quite prolific and right out there. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, degrading idolatry. 
the underlying thing is all of these lusts tend to lead people to sexual gratification outside the will of God. This is what he's talking about here. That's not converted living. Now, when you look at the first century in this little list, if you're like me, you saw something. Not much has changed over the centuries. American life is very much like verse 3. Let me give you a few examples. Verse 3, describe America. Here's a little list. The American college campus is listed in verse 3. If you know anything about American college, especially spring break, it's incredible. Or how about the adult bar and party scene? Same kind of thing. Or the Hollywood entertainment industry that brings their garbage of these things right into our homes and into our theaters. Or cultural festivals like Mardi Gras when all these kinds of things are going on. We're talking about millions of Americans doing verse 3. You might be thinking, well, that's them. We don't do that here at Old North. You might be saying, we don't do those things. Well, maybe not, and praise God. But let me give you some bad news. If we're not doing those kinds of things, we all have some demons of lust that we have to fight back. We all have self-gratification in some form. And the converted life says, in the words of Peter in verses 2 and 3, Before I met Christ, I lived for my old passions. But I've done enough of that now, and now that I know him, and now that I am converted, I'm not going to live that way anymore. I'm not going to gratify the desires of my body outside the law of God. I'm going to live for the will of God. By the way, the will of God here is our holiness. That is our sanctification. It's living a life of obedience and purity, and character, and integrity, with our mind set on the spirit and not on the flesh. Living for the will of God is difficult because these lusts of the flesh keep raising their ugly heads, and unconverted people give in to their lusts, and far too often so do Christians who say they are converted. Now, the Bible doesn't classify lusts this way, but I'm going to give you two kinds of lusts that I think are very legitimate. And I think these two kinds of categories are found in most churches. One is a somewhat okay lust category, and the other one is really bad lust category. And so what do we do? We tend to, in our churches, gravitate to the not really bad, somewhat okay lust and excuse ourselves because we don't do the really, really bad lusts. Now, I don't have a problem with the really, really bad lusts. If I had a problem with the really bad lusts, guess what? The elders would fire me and I'd be out of here. But I do have a problem with the somewhat okay lusts. Let me give you a little example. Comfort food is one of those somewhat okay lust. And let me tell you how it plays out for me. Say it's been a long, hard day at the church office and in ministry. And on the way home, I'm thinking, I'm lonely. My wife is in Erie. I want some comfort food when I go. And so when I get home, I deserve a snack binge. <laughs> that is unconverted thinking. That is the lust of the flesh in this somewhat okay lust 
category, and I have to master it. But lest you think I'm the only one there, I know. I've been around the block long enough that every one of us has the same problem. There's something within us that wants to raise its ugly head and say, I want to spend more than I should. I want to be involved in a hobby more than I should. I mean, these things could look really, really okay, but they could take us over. And so we got to watch out for this one category of the somewhat okay lust. And they are very powerful. And unless we deal with them, we cannot live a converted life in the will of God. There's a third thing that will help us uh, to live a converted life. Not just victory over our sufferings. Not just victory over our lusts. But we got to be careful of our friends. And the third part of living a converted life is you need to change your friends if they're pulling you down. A very, very powerful statement here in verses 4 through 7. And the Apostle Paul also said, which is absolutely true in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Author and pastor Chuck Swindoll put it this way a little differently. He said, if you drop a white glove into the mud, the mud doesn't become glovey, the glove becomes muddy. And the same thing is true about relationships. You're being a real good Christian with a bunch of bad friends, you're not going to influence them, but I am here to tell you on the strength of the Word of God, Old Testament and New Testament, they will have a powerfully bad influence on you. And when you get truly converted, You stop doing the things you used to do with your friends. And before long, verse 4 says, you stop running with them. Verse 4 goes on to say, they may even malign you, say bad things about you, and think you are weird. Remember that tent meeting revival that I said I really got converted at in Willow Grove, Pennsylvania? For several years before that, I ran with this group of guys, and we did a bunch of bad things, things I shouldn't do. And I tried to hang out with those same guys after I really got converted. By the end of the summer, I couldn't keep doing those things. I lost all those friends. It was incredible how God turned me around. But you know what? If I'd have stayed with those guys doing the bad things I was doing, I think I'd have missed the call to ministry because it was within three months of my conversion and my stopping doing the things and running with that crowd that God called me into the pastoral ministry. And I'm grateful that I changed my friends because God was working with me. Now, I understood what verse 5 said. It's about the judgment of God. And that those who live for their lust and malign the converted will give an account to the Lord someday. And that burned in my heart. And so I just didn't give up these friends. I began to actually talk to them about what God had been doing in my life. I tried to explain to them that God had gotten a hold of me and changed me from the inside out and then I truly was finally converted you know what they did they laughed at me they mocked me and they said we don't want to hang out with you and then I went off to college I wrote every one of those friends letters trying to explain the gospel to them and you know what happened same thing this Al guy has turned weird I didn't have one breakthrough not one breakthrough but a number of years ago one of the guys I used to hang out with, one of the guys I had witnessed to, his name is Dave. I ran across him, and I was shocked out of my socks. Do you know what I found out? Not only had he come to Christ in the years later, 
he was actually a missionary in Europe. I couldn't believe it. You never know what God's going to do if you are faithful in conversion. I will tell you, changing friends is hard to do, but bad friends will pull you down. And if you must separate from the wrong crowd of friends, then pray for them because you'll never know when God's going to reach down and save them. Well, the first reality in your life is your life won't change even though you get saved until you are converted. And if your Christian life is going to mean anything, if the will of God is going to mean anything in your life, you can't live the way you used to live before you met Christ. And you can't live loving the world. That's not conversion. You live for the will of God. But there's a second reality today that will make a huge difference in your life. Reality, too, is not just true conversion. It is a last day's mentality. A last day's mentality, verses 7 through 11. Do you know, I don't know where you are as a church. I'm fairly new here. I'm only 10 months into this. But I don't know whether this church lives in the reality of the last days. That Jesus Christ is coming. I hope you do. Because if you live with the reality that we are in the last days, it'll change the way you live. And Peter says in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. And my assessment of the church across America is we're not thinking about the Lord's return. We're just kind of comfortable the way we are, enjoying our big screen TVs and all kinds of things like that and say, well, we're going to do a little church on Sunday, but the rest of the... Oh, no. Peter's saying, if you're really going to be truly converted, if you're really going to be living for the will of God and ceasing from sin, you are going to come to grips that we are living in the last days. Now we have an interpretive problem here. And the interpretive problem is this. He said that almost 2,000 years ago, and he still hasn't come back. What do we make of that? I'm really glad there was a second Peter. Second Peter says, verses 3 and 3 and 4, chapter 3 and verses 3 and 4, in the last days mockers will come, following after their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of his coming? It's been 2,000 years. Ha, ha, he's not coming back. And then he goes on to explain the loving kindness and mercy of the Lord. That the Lord does not count time the way we do. And that he's not slow about his coming back. But he's patient so more and more can come to repentance. Church, we need to believe that we're living in the last days. And not to question God's time clock. In fact, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 3 says... Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself even as he is pure. What hope is John talking about? The coming of the Lord. And friends, when you really believe that Christ is coming back, then it will make a difference. And Peter says in two areas. So quickly, let me talk about them. Number one, if you believe that Christ is coming back, it will affect your spiritual discernment. Verse 7. If you know it's the last days, you are going to look at the world with true understanding. If you don't know it's the last days or don't believe it's the last days, then anything goes. The ESV, the version that we use as a church in verse 7, says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. The Greek words aren't, aren't as translated as well there as I would like to see. Basically, the Greek words have the idea of being of sound mind more than being self-controlled and being sober. That is not coming under the influence of anything other than the Holy Spirit in your life. 
And so if you have a spiritually sober and sound mind, you will have spiritual discernment. And you will realize that this world is not your home and you won't live that way. You will realize why the attacks are coming, even as they are today, against the precious doctrines of the Word of God. You'll understand that that will happen in the last days. You will understand why they keep on trying to remove God from the public square. You will understand that with spiritual dis uh, discernment. And you will realize that in every area of your life, if you understand it's the last days, you will be sober-minded in your mind and you will be of sound mind and able to see through things. How do you know if you have a sound mind? Well, the text tells us, you will be moved to prayer. A sound mind says, look at this world. We need to get on our knees before God and spiritually discerning people are people of prayer. And the text says that that becomes our lifeblood, as it were, in these dark days. And my assessment is this rampant lack of prayer across the church in America is an evidence that we are lacking the spiritual discernment that Peter is talking about in his text. Well, friends, we need to accept the fact that all things are in the last days, and it should change the way we think, but it should make one final difference. Peter says it this way, verses 8 through 11. Our relationships with Christians should change. Before we were converted, we kind of lived for ourselves, and then we lived for people that we kind of liked. But if we didn't like certain people, then we pushed them aside. And Peter is saying here that we need to have strong, positive, loving relationships with those who call themselves Christians. And I'm talking about every Christian we know. If they are in your family, if they are in your church, if they are in your school, if they are at your work, the verses we're talking about here, starting at verse 8, is talking about fervently loving one another. And it means you're going to stretch forward and reach out as hard as you can. A hard stretch you're going to do with all that you can, an effort to love people in your family and right on. And so there are three important musts that he said we must do in this relationship. Number one, he says in verse 8, we must overlook each other's sins. Love covers a multitude of sin. Does that mean we condone their sin? No. It means we don't get offended when they sin against us. And we continue to love somebody who hurts us. We must be quick to forgive them because you need to remember we all have a boatload of our own sin. And people need to love us in spite of our sin as well. The second relational must is we must be very friendly to people without complaint. Verse 9. Ooh, is that a good one? Each of us needs to look at ourselves as a host and hostess trying to make life easy for people without complaining about people and to people when we're with them. We want to be people who make people feel right at home. We want to overwhelm people with our hospitality and love on them. We don't want to be around people who complain, and we don't want to be a complainer. And we're going to be harding, uh, being hard at work, loving people, and not picking apart through complaint. After this bad winter, Marie noticed something about me. She said, Al, you're turning into a whiner. This winter is getting the best of you. And she she, I could tell it was kind of eroding a little bit in our relationship there. And so she reminded me that I needed to dwell with her without complaining. And so that was a good word. And the same thing is true at church. When you come here, be hospitable 
and friendly to everyone you meet. Do not go into these hallways with an opportunity to complain. Doing negative complaining around worship takes away the power of worship. And by the way, let me tell you something about the pastors and the staff. Don't go up to them before a service or after a service and complain to them about things. Why? We have come here in the Spirit to lead you in worship and and to have a spiritual ministry. And if somebody pulls you aside in the hallway before or after and really lays one on you, what do you think that does to our spirit? And so you've got to say, when you come to this church for worship, it's going to be a place where we are hospitable and not complaining. And so there is a time to voice complaints. And you need to know when those times are at home and at church. Maybe we should call a special wine and cheese event so that we know when to complain. Otherwise, let's go out of our way to be friendly without complaint. And thirdly, and finally, and my time is gone, we must minister to each other with our spiritual gifts. And let let me just say here that we are supposed to show a special power and, and gift towards those that we know throughout the whole week and love them with God's behalf, with the spiritual gifts that he has given us. Now, I want to share an observation with you. I have discovered in 40 years of ministry that loving people and using our gifts with people, we, we've slacked off way too much. And we're weak at that in our home and our church. Lots of husbands aren't ministering to their wives and vice versa. And there are many, many times in church that we're not happy with each other, and so we just say, see you later, I'm out of here. Do you know where the two greatest centers of love ought to be? The home and the church. And Peter is saying that if you love one another and use your gifts with them, then people are going to be built up and they're going to experience the kind of love that they need, the fervent love for each other. Well, as I close today, I just want you to know, being saved is not enough. You need to be converted. And Peter says, when you are converted, you will realize two things. Number one, you will realize that you need to be converted as well as saved. And number two, you need to realize that you're living in the last times. It will change how you live. I want Old North Church to be a community of people where these two realities transform your lives. The last thing I want is for Old North Church to be a place where you call yourself a Christian and you do a little religion here on the weekend and then you live like the world the rest of the week. As we come to an end here, as our band returns to the platform, I send a call to you. I believe there are some people here today that need to become serious about how you're living. I believe that you need to make a change. I believe that you need to be converted. I believe you have to do what I did. I realized that I was just living a life in front of people, but not truly converted. And today, you're realizing the same thing. Will you leave here the way you came in today, or will you do something about it? I'm going to ask you to stand right now. And I'm going to ask you, if you need to make some mid-course, please stand. If you need to make some mid-course corrections that you're saved but not converted, I'm going to ask you to come forward and declare yourself that for me, I'm going to follow Jesus from today on, and there is no turning back. I did it one night. 
in Willow Grove, Pennsylvania, in front of hundreds of people. And today, that might be your need. You need to step up from just salvation to true conversion to follow the Lord without turning back. So let's sing. And during the whole song, if God has spoken to you, feel free to come and then I'll pray for you.